Daniel chapter 7. So the first page and the top of the second page will hopefully just be review for us. Daniel 7, After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast. So remember from chapter 2, this fourth kingdom is right before the kingdom of God. A fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had ten horns, and there came up among them another horn, a king, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. So that king defeats three other kings. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. As I looked, the beast, so that's the fourth kingdom, including this king, was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast and about the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. Verse 24, As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom, that's the Son of Man from earlier in Daniel 7, that's Jesus, His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. Okay, there's a lot there, but just get this. If we, if we picture God's view of world history, what it seems like we're seeing here is a sequence of major kingdoms leading up to this fourth kingdom. And at the end of that kingdom, there's a terrible ruler who is defeated by Jesus and the Ancient of Days, and it brings in God's kingdom. Now, there's a, a million questions about the timing of all that, exactly how all that works, but that's a clear, big picture. Kingdoms, 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 kingdoms. Terrible ruler, God's kingdom. And the terrible ruler gets judged. All right? And, and the saints there, it says, are given into his hand for times, time, times and half a time. And he's going to change the times and the law. And he's arrogant and he's boastful until he's judged. All right, that's chapter 7. And now Daniel 8, which we studied last week. After the death of Alexander the Great and the division of the Greek Empire, out of one of the divisions of the Greek Empire came a little horn... 
That's a king, Antiochus IV, in the 160s B.C., which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land, toward the land of Israel. It grew great even to the host of heaven. So that's the ruler who grew great. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. So when Antiochus attacked God's people in Jerusalem, he was assaulting heaven itself. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host. In other words, it looked like Antiochus was even greater than God because he was overcoming God's people in God's place. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. So again, it looks like Antiochus is beating God. He overtook the temple. He stopped the regular Jewish worship. Verse 12, And a host will be given over to it, to the horn, to Antiochus, together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. So Antiochus seen victorious against God's people and God's worship. And he also outlawed the word of God. Verse 13, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? So Antiochus desecrated the temple with pagan sacrifices and dedicated it to Zeus. Verse 14, he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. And the temple was rededicated in 164 BC. Now, later in the same chapter, when we get to the, the interpretation of that, so this is talking about the same thing. This is God's part of God's interpretation of it. Verse 23, a king of bold face. This is the same king. A king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. And Antiochus died in Babylon without outside intervention in 164 B.C. So I put on there from our notes last week, we asked, is Antiochus IV the same person as that terrifying politician right before the kingdom of God comes in Daniel 7? Probably not. Because they're not in the same kingdom, the details don't line up, and because Jesus and the kingdom of God did not come in conjunction with the fall of Antiochus IV. So on a timeline... The little horn of chapter 8 apparently comes before the little horn of chapter 7, who is overthrown by the coming of Jesus and kingdom of God. So back to the timeline we were, I was doing with my hands just a minute ago. You've got kingdom, 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 terrible ruler, kingdom of God. But what you have, once you add Daniel 8, is kingdom, kingdom, kingdom with a terrible ruler who's going to be a lot like that final ruler, 
kingdom, final ruler, kingdom of God. Antiochus is one of the rulers along the way who will be a lot like that final ruler, and actually the ruler most like that final ruler that we've seen so far in human history. So uh, if you continue there, if the terrifying politician of Daniel 8 is not history's final terrifying politician from Daniel 7, why did God spend so much time telling us about him? And last week we said, because 370 years after Daniel, the Jewish people would have to face him in their most horrific persecution yet, because Antiochus IV is the closest thing history has ever seen to what the terrifying final fourth kingdom ruler will be like, and because God's people will often live under rulers who fit a similar profile. All right, so after Daniel 7 and 8, we've got a picture of a final terrible world ruler, and we've got an example of one like him in real life from the 160s BC. So what's next is the end of Daniel 9, which we have not studied yet, and many people say this is the most difficult paragraph in the Old Testament. Uh, so the details will have to wait till next Sunday. But here's what it says. And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one, probably Jesus, shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he, the prince who is to come, shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, maybe three and a half years, like the time times and half a time of Daniel 7, for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. So this sounds a lot like the abominations of Antiochus IV. But in this context, because it's after 62 weeks, it seems to be talking about a ruler who comes many years after Antiochus and does similar things in the Jerusalem temple. So there's a huge discussion about who it is. Um, but it's another ruler like Antiochus IV but after Antiochus IV, who once again does abominations and desolations of the sanctuary. Okay? I'm not going to ask if you have any questions about that. <laughs> Daniel 11 is the other place where we find this terrible final ruler in Daniel. And again, we haven't studied it yet, so we won't get into the details, but... Remember that after, about 20 years after the death of Alexander the Great, uh, the Greek Empire ended up in these four major divisions. But that sounds to us like it's one Greek Empire, four divisions, everybody's happy. But in reality, they were warring with each other uh, for territory and for power. And so Daniel 11 tells about the wars between two of those parts of the Greek Empire— leading up to Antiochus IV and his power in the, the Syrian part of that empire. And it goes into lots of detail about that. Remarkable detail because it was, you know, 300-some years before those things would happen. Um, but it tells about that, that fight for power in the Greek empire. And then on your handout, you have Daniel 11, verse 28. By this point, it seems like it's 
Antiochus IV that it's talking about, his heart shall be set against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder. So nearly everyone is agreed that those verses describe Antiochus's assault on Jerusalem in the 160s BC and his terrible treatment of the temple and his terrible treatment of God's people. But then a few verses later, it keeps going and it almost sounds like it's, it sounds like Antiochus, but it starts to sound like it can't quite be Antiochus. Like it says stuff that don't seem like they fit with him. So it almost seems like it starts talking about a future ruler who's like him, but not him. Verse 36, and the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the God of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the God of fortresses instead of these a God whom his fathers did not know he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, he shall load with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. But the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land and tens of thousands shall fall. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. And he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and and the glorious holy mountain, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. So there you go. Who's that talking about? Uh, we'll talk more about the passage when we get to Daniel 11. But those verses are either describing Antiochus or it sure seems like it goes beyond him to somebody after him. Same pattern, but even worse. And you see hints there of like uh, uh, a final battle and, and so forth. So lots to talk about. So from Daniel 7, 8, 9, and 11, 
we've got some characteristics and some clues about a future terrible world ruler. How clear is it? (laughs) It's not clear at all, right? Just lots of clues. It's like a puzzle with lots of pieces and almost none of them are together uh, at this point. Some of them, there are a few little connections, you know, like the persecution and killing of God's people. There are some of those pieces that fit, but a lot of it is just really, really vague. So does the New Testament say anything about a terrible final ruler? That's a really big question because the New Testament comes after Antiochus. So if it talks about a coming terrible ruler, then we know it's not just Antiochus. There's somebody else, somebody else coming. And the answer is yes, the New Testament talks about a ruler a lot. Matthew 24. Now, Jesus doesn't say anything in Matthew 24 about a ruler, but he says a couple things about what the ruler does that sound just like Daniel. Matthew 24, um, and I didn't, for the sake of time, I didn't put the whole passage in here, but verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, that's really helpful, right? If we were wondering if he was talking about the same thing, he tells us he is. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. So that's super fascinating because the abomination of desolation was done by Antiochus in the 160s BC. And Jesus says, when you see it. So the original abomination of desolation by Antiochus must have been just a a type of what was going to happen again in in the future. Verse 16, Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. False Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. But then Jesus would come. That's not supposed to say could come. That's supposed to say would come. Then Jesus would come, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So again, you have this timing thing where it's like you have this ruler and then you have the coming of Jesus. The ruler is not mentioned here, but the abomination of desolation that he does is mentioned here. And then Jesus. So sometime after Jesus died and rose again, this terrible ruler was going to come. And then when that ruler was in power, Jesus was apparently going to come again. All right, now let's go to the writing of the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica. So so if Jesus was teaching around, let's say, 32 AD, we come ahead to Paul and Thessalonians, and now Paul's writing very roughly around 50 AD, 15 or 20 years after Jesus. And he says, now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3, let no one deceive you in any way about Christ's coming, second coming. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. 
And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So verse 3 calls this. Now, now did this passage refer to this person as a king or prince or ruler? I don't think it does. Now, it, it seems like he probably is to have this kind of sway and authority. But what it calls him is a man of lawlessness. Now, lawlessness reminds us of Daniel saying he's going to try to change the times and the laws and he's going to throw truth to the ground. Well, that seems like a connection. Verse 3 calls him a son of destruction. And in Daniel, you know, it's like this terrible beast trampling and crushing and tearing everything. Verse 4 describes his blasphemy and desecrating the temple, which sounds just like what Daniel describes. And actually, verse 4 tells us even more than Daniel. And this is something, what does verse 4 say that even Antiochus did not do? What does verse 4 say that even Antiochus did not do? Yeah, he he like sits himself in the temple. Antiochus put (laughs) Greek gods in the temple, sacrificed pigs, but this ruler seats himself in the temple. Like, maybe that's the ultimate abomination of desolation. Verse 9 says that what this person does is by the activity of Satan with power and false signs and wonders. So that doesn't really connect back to Daniel, except that Daniel says he has power that's not his own, but it definitely connects ahead to Revelation. And then verse 10 describes deception, just as Daniel describes a very deceitful, crafty, cunning ruler. And then verse 8 says the Lord Jesus will kill him and bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So once again, this person seems to be in power when Jesus comes. We've seen that consistent timing indicator over and over again. All right, that's Paul in 1 Thessalonians. And then we come to 1 John 2. And we don't know when John, the Apostle John, wrote um, these letters. Um, it could be late, like the 90s, when it seems like he wrote the book of Revelation, but it could be in the decades earlier than that, but, but probably after Paul. And he writes, children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. All right, have we seen the word Antichrist? anywhere else. We have not. Jesus used the phrase false Christ, but the word antichrist was nowhere else and is nowhere else except 1 John 2 and 4. 
So it's very interesting when he says, you've heard that Antichrist is coming, because that's not in any scriptures that we know of. Um, maybe that means that the early Christian church had begun to, dis- begun to describe this ruler with the word Antichrist. I'm not sure about that, but it's possible. Children, it's the last hour, and as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they, are, they all are not of us. Okay, so here's what's interesting. Where are the Antichrists that he's talking about? They're in the church. He's not talking about rulers. He's not talking about politicians. He's talking about people in the church who are claiming to be Christians. And yet, actually, time is going to show that they are not of us. They are not born-again believers in Jesus Christ. Verse 22, Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And then over in chapter 4, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the Spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. So, from those two passages come the word Antichrist which has then been applied to the final terrible world ruler. But, I don't know, am I getting myself in trouble when I say this? To me, the connection is pretty weak because the antichrists that he's describing are false teachers in the church. And there's not a lot of parallel between that and this this terrible, blasphemous, pagan, anti-God ruler. So, what am I saying? I'm just saying, I don't love using the word antichrist to always describe these rulers in these other passages. That's why you hear me keep using the phrase, a final terrible ruler, or something like that. Um, I like that phrase a little bit more. But maybe the reason why he says, you've heard that antichrist is coming, is because the early church started to use the word antichrist for that ruler. And so maybe we should use the word antichrist for him. It's what everybody does, so um, we're stuck with it. But I'm just giving you my opinion that in 1 John 4, it's not political. It's not, uh, the, it sounds different to me. Um, but certainly, the spirit of the political ruler is anti-Jesus, as we're going to see in just a minute. Let's go to Revelation chapter 6, verse 2. What time is it? 11.30? Ah, we have 15 minutes. This is exciting. Revelation 6, verse 2. And I looked, okay, wait, wait, no, don't, don't read that yet. So, Revelation 5, is he worthy? Is he worthy to do what? What's in the scroll? God's plans for how to end all this. Jesus is the one who's worthy. Revelation 6 begins, and Jesus breaks the first wax seal on the scroll. So it starts to unfold. Revelation 6, verse 2. And I looked, and behold, here's the very first thing from the scroll. A white horse. 
Who rides a white horse? And its rider had a bow and a crown was given to him and he came out conquering and to conquer. In Revelation 19, Jesus rides the white horse. But here, this ruler is just the first of a whole bunch of people on horses who cause lots of trouble. And so we don't know for sure who this is. But in Revelation, there's going to be a final world ruler. And what he loves to do is imitate Jesus. And so it's definitely possible that the rider on the white horse in Revelation 6-2 is actually the Antichrist. The, yeah, there we go. The Antichrist coming onto the scene. And from the first moment, he is trying to mimic Jesus in every way possible. The, the prefix anti in Antichrist, anti can mean against, but it can also mean instead of. He is not only against Jesus, he is instead of Jesus. He is a false Christ. He is a substitute Christ. He is a fake Christ. He is a fake Messiah. He is trying to be the savior that the world wants. There's even a kind of a, a, a substitute trinity in Revelation with the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. Um, so Revelation 6-2, a rider on a white horse. Not sure, but it could be. Now go over to Revelation 11. Revelation 11 is describing two witnesses on the streets of Jerusalem who are killed, and the person who kills them is called the beast. Verse 7, And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. All right, so here we meet a beast. We met lots of beasts in Daniel, right? And in Daniel, remember, this is important in in Revelation 2. In Daniel, beasts could be kingdoms or the kings of those kingdoms. And it kind of went back and forth. And that the same thing is true in Revelation. The beast can be the final world kingdom. More often, it's the final terrible ruler. So here in Revelation, the beast that kills these two witnesses for God may be that final terrible ruler, maybe the Antichrist. All right, now Revelation 13. And Revelation 13 is... Uh, is um, Oh, it's just, it's, it's so packed full of Daniel. There are like whole books written about it. Um, so you, you could just watch for the things here that, that sound something like Daniel. I'm not saying they're identical to Daniel. Some of the descriptions are actually different. But you've got some things that are identical to Daniel, and then you've just got the words of Daniel and the concepts of Daniel that come up over and over again here. Uh, Revelation 13, I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon, now it becomes really clear, it's stated directly in Revelation that the dragon is Satan. And, and to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled 
as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, Satan, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? And who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Wait a second. That sounds like time, times, and half a time that we saw earlier. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. This is a global kingdom. And all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Did you see some Daniel in there? And yet it's not just like repeating Daniel. It's, it's in some ways seems kind of like a different picture, though with many similarities too. Notice that in verse 3, the beast or one of the heads of the beast somehow gets a mortal wound, yet the mortal wound is healed. It's almost as if there is a counterfeit resurrection in Revelation. If he's a false Christ and a substitute Christ, it seems like Satan somehow even helps the beast portray something that looks like a resurrection. Revelation 16. So we move ahead from chapter 13 now. Chapter 16. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. There's that trinity that I talked about earlier. Three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. So this obviously is very figurative in symbolic language with frogs coming out of beast mouths. But you can see there that there seems to be this ruler plays a role in gathering the armies of the world together to try to take on God. And now Revelation 17. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman. And the interpretation of the woman is a big question in Revelation. She's called Babylon the Great. She's called a prostitute. She, she probably represents the final anti-God world government, um, though that's not certain. I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings. They hand over their power and authority to the beast. That sounds something like Revelation. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. There it is again. The coming of Jesus happens when the beast is at the height of his power, and Jesus defeats him. 
They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with Him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. The end of that is crazy, but basically it's describing this, this, it seems like it's describing this great government and this great ruler who has unified the whole world in hope, actually destroying itself, turning against its own uh, kingdom and, and causing its, devouring itself but also the lamb conquers them, verse 14. He is Lord of lords and King of kings. So Jesus defeats this king and this kingdom. Did you notice verse 8? They marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Revelation 1, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and Omega who is and who was and who is to come. And they're just trying to fake Jesus, be like Jesus, deceive people away from Jesus every way they can. Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And then there's more description of him. And then verse 17. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, Gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. Sure sounds like you've got a huge battle here that, in, that incorporates like the people of earth all together, all these kingdoms. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies. So you see, there's that ruler leading this whole war. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the beast is gone. There you go. You've seen now, I, I, I think we can pretty much say you've seen everything the Bible says about a terrible final end times ruler, whom we might call the Antichrist. Um, maybe there are a few other connections we could make, but those are all the main passages. That's all the main information. So what do we make of this? What's the heart of the matter? What's the point? Let me try to illustrate it. I've already kind of been hinting at it, but let me try to illustrate it with three verses from Revelation. Revelation 11, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven. So we're coming kind of toward the, the end of the stuff that Jesus is unrolling. And this angel blows his trumpet, and these loud voices say, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Chapter 12, verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, 
Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. And chapter 13, verse 1, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea. So I would say it's like this. At that point in the future, Jesus is coming to set up His kingdom, and Satan knows it, and so Satan rushes to set up his own kingdom first. That's, I think, the kind of simple bottom line of what's going on here. Over this past year, we've heard a lot in the news. Over this past week, we've heard a lot in the news about candidate selection and candidate quality. Satan picks his best man and gives him every resource possible, and they pull off every trick possible to try to lure humanity away from Jesus Christ. It is all a giant counterfeit. It's all a giant attempt to beat Jesus to it, to draw humanity away from Christ, to unite all of humanity into a final war against Christ and win. All the world's rebellion reaches its climax in this ruler and his kingdom. All of the world's idolatry reaches its climax. All the world's hatred of God reaches its climax. In the book of Revelation, there actually aren't very many main characters. It's actually just six. Father, Son, Spirit, Dragon, Beast, False Prophet are these six dominant characters in the book of Revelation. Isn't that interesting? One of those trinities is real and is true and is sovereignly in control and triumphs and sets up an everlasting kingdom. And one of those trinities is a fraud and a fake that loses and dies and turns in on itself and causes its own destruction and damnation and is defeated by Jesus. And like Daniel chapter 2, is pulverized and there's no hint of it left. So, the point of the book of Revelation is... Jesus. And the point of the doctrine of the Antichrist is Jesus. That's what we're supposed to learn. I want to uh, speak a word of, uh, what am I trying to say? Shout out to my friend, Dr. Brian Hand, for two excellent books. Um, He's a professor at Bob Jones Seminary. He has a book called The Climax of Biblical Prophecy, A Guide to Interpreting Revelation. But then he has a book called The Worthy Champion, and a terrifying subtitle, A Christology of the Book of Revelation Based on Elements of Its Literary Composition. What that means is he just says, no matter how we interpret Revelation, he takes all the different, um, the, the different like, like, let's look at the characters in Revelation. Let's look at the timing in Revelation. Let's look at Revelation from every angle. And from every angle that you look at the book of Revelation, the conclusion is, Jesus. And so that's what this book shows. It's called The Worthy Champion by Dr. Brian Hand. So uh, I think he does a great job of, of demonstrating just that, like he has a chart in there, 34 titles of Jesus in Revelation. 34! So what's the point of the doctrine of the Antichrist? For us to see that this is the very best that the world has to offer. The best Savior the world can provide is a terrifying, cruel, 
heartless, deceptive, arrogant beast. So the ultimate point of the doctrine of the Antichrist is to love Jesus. One of the things I appreciate from Dr. Hand is that he not only points out that Jesus is so much more powerful than the beast in Revelation, but that Jesus is also kind, and he's also good, and he's also loving. And there's just none of that in this nasty beast that is the best Satan can present. So the ultimate point of the doctrine of the Antichrist is to love Jesus. But since the Antichrist is... Now, here's where Christians disagree. There are some Christians who would find the fulfillment of those things in the first century under uh, Caligula or uh, Nero or someone like that. Um, And I respect that view very much. I can't believe that myself based on these these passages. Um, But there are good Christians who disagree on that. Um, But if we work off of the assumption that the Antichrist is still coming in the future, then it is important for us to be aware, to learn from these things, and to be ready to love Jesus no matter what happens here on earth. And actually, Revelation 13 says it directly. After it describes the terrible final ruler, Revelation 13 verse 10 stops and tells us the point. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. That's the point. Let the doctrine of the terrible Antichrist point you to the greatness and goodness of Jesus that you might endure in faithfulness to him no matter what happens. That you might say, like with Psalm 63, your chesed, your loving kindness is better than life itself. I'll take Jesus. Take the world. Give me Jesus. Take my life, beast, because that's what he's going to do to many, many believers. Take my life. You can't take Jesus from me. This is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. You did it all the way through what the Bible says about the Antichrist. And I answered every question. (laughs) Nope, I didn't. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that even in the things we can't understand about these truths, we can see a beautiful portrayal of all that you have for us, given to us in King Jesus. Oh, help us to love him today and not head out from here and go live in unfaithfulness to such a great Savior. May we love you and be faithful to you today. In Jesus' name, amen.